Section 7 of The Life of Abraham Lincoln, Volume 2, by Ida Tarbell. The Sleepervox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 25 Lincoln and Emancipation, Part 1. The 22nd of February was the day that the President had set for an advance of the Army, but it was evident to both the administration and the country that the Army of the Potomac would not be ready to move then. Nor could anybody find from McClellan when he would move the muttering of the country began again committee after committee waited on the president he did his best to assure them that he was doing all he could he pointed out to them how time and patience as well as men and money were needed in war and he argued that above all he must not be interfered with it was at this time that he used his striking illustration of blondine some gentlemen from the west called at the white house one day excited and troubled about some of the commissions or omissions of the administration the president heard them patiently and then replied gentlemen suppose all the property you were worth was in gold and you had put it in the hands of blondine to carry across the niagara river on a rope would you shake the cable or keep shouting at him blondine stand up a little straighter blondine stoop a little more go a little faster lean a little more to the north lean a little more to the south no you would hold your breath as well as your tongue and keep your hands off until he was safe over the government is carrying an enormous weight untold treasures are in their hands they are doing the very best they can don't badger them keep silence and we will get you safe across one of the most insistent of the many bodies which beset him was the congressional committee on the conduct of the war appointed the december before aggressive and patriotic these gentlemen were determined the army should move but it was not until march that they became convinced that anything would be done one day early in that month senator chandler of michigan a member of the committee met george w julian he was in high glee old abe is mad he said to julian and the war will now go on whether it would or not remained to be seen but it was soon evident to everybody that the president was going to make another effort to have it go on for on march eighth he issued general war orders numbers two and three the first dividing the army of the potomac into four army corps and the second directing that the move against richmond by the way of the chesapeake bay should begin as early as the eighteenth of march and that the general-in-chief should be responsible for its moving as early as that day in this order lincoln made the important stipulation that general mcclellan should make no change of base without leaving in and about washington a force sufficient to guarantee its safety when lincoln issued the above orders which were finally to drive mcclellan from his quarters around washington the war against the south had been going on for nearly a year in that time the north had succeeded in gathering and equipping an army of about six hundred thirty thousand men but this army had not so far materially changed the line of hostilities between the north and south save in the west where kentucky and northern missouri had been cleared of most of the confederates a navy had been collected but beyond establishing a partial blockade of the ports of the confederacy it had done little the ineffectiveness of the great effort the north had made was charged naturally to the inefficiency of the administration 
mr lincoln was ignorant and weak men said else he would have found generals who would have won victories a large part of the north the anti-slavery element bitterly denounced him because he had taken no action as yet in regard to slavery they would have him employ the slaves in the armies free those which escaped lincoln understood clearly how strong a weapon against the south the army and emancipating of the slaves might be but he did not want to use it throughout his entire political life he had disclaimed any desire to meddle with slavery in the states where the constitution recognized it he had undertaken the war not to free men but to preserve the union moreover he feared that the least interference with slavery would drive from him those states lying between the north and south which believed in the institution and yet were for the union already they had given him much substantial aid he hoped to win them entirely to the north emancipation would surely make that hope vain it was largely because he wished to keep their support that when as had happened twice already in his year of service prominent subordinates had attempted to help the northern cause by measures affecting slavery he had promptly annulled their orders yet now for many weeks he had been coming to the conclusion that he must do something with this weapon he must do it to throw confusion into the south with whom so far the military advantage lay to win sympathy from europe which exasperated by the suffering which the failure to get cotton caused the people was threatening to recognize the southern confederacy as an independent nation above all to disarm the enemy in his rear the dissatisfied faction of his own supporters who were beginning to threaten that if he did not free and arm the slaves he could get his hands on they would stop the arms and money they were sending him to carry on the war all through the fall of eighteen sixty one he was examining this weapon of emancipation much as a man in a desperate situation might a dagger which he did not want to unsheath but feared he might be forced to he was seeking a way to use it if the time came when he must that would accomplish all the ends he had in view and still would not drive the border states from the union the plan upon which he finally settled was a simple and just though impracticable one he would ask congress to set aside money gradually to buy and free the negroes in those states that could be persuaded to give up the institution of slavery having freed the slaves he proposed that congress should colonize them in territory bought for the purpose according to charles sumner mr lincoln had this plan of compensated emancipation well developed by december first eighteen sixty one the senator reached washington on that day and went in the evening to call on the president together they talked over the annual message which was to be sent to congress on the third mr sumner was disappointed that it said nothing about emancipation he had been speaking in massachusetts on emancipation our best weapon and he ardently desired that the president use the weapon the president explained the plan he had developed and mr sumner urged that it be presented at once mr lincoln declined to agree to this but as he rose to say good-bye to his visitor he remarked well mr sumner the only difference between you and me on this subject is a difference of a month or six weeks in time mr president said mr sumner 
if that is the only difference between us i will not say another word to you about it till the long-set time you name has passed by nor should i have done so continues sumner in telling the story but about a fortnight after when i was with him he introduced the subject himself asked my opinion on some details of his plan and told me where it labored his mind at that time he had the hope that some one of the border states delaware perhaps if nothing better could be got might be brought to make a proposition which could be made use of as the initiation to hitch the whole thing to he was in correspondence with some persons at a distance with this view but he did not consult a person in washington excepting mr chase and mr blair and myself seward knew nothing about it sumner could not keep still after this about the plan almost every time he saw lincoln he put in a word thus when the trent affair was up he took occasion to read the president a little lecture now mr president he said if you had done your duty earlier in the slavery matter you would not have this trouble on you now you have no friends or the country has none because it has no policy upon slavery the country has no friends in europe excepting isolated persons england is not a friend france is not but if you had commenced your policy about slavery this thing could and would have come and gone and would have given you no anxiety every time i saw him i spoke to him about it and i saw him every two or three days one day i said to him i remember i want you to make congress a new year's present of your plan but he had some reason still for delay he was in correspondence with kentucky there was a mr speed in kentucky to whom he was writing he read me one of his letters once and he thought he should hear from there how people would be affected by such a plan at one time i thought he would send in the message on new year's day and i said something about what a glorious thing it would be but he stopped me in a moment don't say a word about that he said i know very well that the name which is connected with this act will never be forgotten well there was one delay in another but i always spoke to him till one day in january he said sadly that he had been up all night with his sick child i was very much touched and i resolved that i would say nothing to the president about this or any other business if i could help it till that child was well or dead and i did not i had never said a word to him again about it one morning here before i had breakfast before i was up indeed both his secretaries came over to say that he wanted to see me as soon as i could see him i dressed at once and went over i want to read you my message he said i want to know how you like it i am going to send it in to-day it was on the morning of march sixth eighteen sixty two that mr lincoln sent for mr sumner to read his message a few hours later when the senator reached the capitol he went to the senate desk to see if the president had carried out his intention yes the document was there as mr sumner's history of the message given to dr hale shows mr lincoln for months quietly prepared the way for his plan one of his most adroit preparatory maneuvers and one of which mr sumner evidently knew nothing was performed in new york city through the honorable carl schurz who at that time was the american minister to spain 
mr schurz who had gone to madrid in eighteen sixty one had not long been there before he concluded that there would be great danger of the southern confederacy being recognized by france and england unless the aspect of the situation was speedily changed either by a decisive military success or by some evidence on the part of the administration that the war was to end in the destruction of slavery if the conflict were put on this high moral plane mr schurz believed that the sympathy of the people in europe would be so strong with the north that interference in favor of the south would be impossible all of this he wrote to mr seward in september of eighteen sixty one but he received no reply to his letter other than a formal acknowledgment after a little time mr schurz wrote to mr lincoln saying that he wanted to come to washington and personally represent to the administration what he conceived to be the true nature of public opinion in europe mr lincoln wrote him to come and he arrived in washington in the last week of january eighteen sixty two he went at once to the white house where he was received by the president who listened attentively to his arguments the same he had made by letter to mr seward when he had finished his presentation of the case mr lincoln said that he was inclined to accept that view but that he was not sure that the public sentiment of the country was ripe for such a policy it had to be educated up to it would not mr schurz go to new york and talk the matter over with their friends some of whom he named mr schurz assented and a few days afterwards reported to mr lincoln that the organization of an emancipation society for the purpose of agitating the idea had been started in new york and that a public meeting would be held at the cooper union on march sixth that's it that is the very thing mr lincoln replied you must make a speech at this meeting go home and prepare it when you have got it outlined bring it to me and i will see what you are going to say mr schurz did so and in a few days submitted to mr lincoln the skeleton of his argument on emancipation as a peace measure that is the right thing to say the president declared after reading it and remember you may hear from me on the same day on march sixth the speech was delivered as had been arranged before an audience which packed cooper union no more logical and eloquent appeal for emancipation was made in all the war period the audience received it with repeated cheers and when mr schurz sat down the applause shook the hall if we may believe the reporter of the new york tribune just as the meeting was adjourning mr schurz did hear from mr lincoln a copy of the message given that afternoon to congress being placed in his hands he at once read it to the audience which already thoroughly aroused now broke out again in a tremendous burst of applause the first effect of the message was to unite the radical supporters of mr lincoln with the more moderate we are all brought by the common sense message said harper's weekly upon the same platform the cannon shot against fort sumter effected three-fourths of our political lines the president's message has wiped out the remaining fourth but to mr lincoln's keen disappointment the border state representatives in congress let the proposition pass in silence he saw one and another of them but not a word did they say of the message the president stood this for four days then he summoned them to the white house to explain his position the talk was long and entirely friendly 
the president said he did not pretend to disguise his anti-slavery feeling that he thought slavery was wrong and should continue to think so but that was not the question they had to deal with slavery existed and that too as well by the act of the north as of the south and in any scheme to get rid of it the north as well as the south was morally bound to do its full and equal share he thought the institution wrong and ought never to have existed but yet he recognized the rights of property which had grown out of it and would respect those rights as fully as similar rights in any other property that property can exist and does legally exist he thought such a law wrong but the rights of property resulting must be respected he would get rid of the odious law not by violating the right but by encouraging the proposition and offering inducements to give it up the representatives assured mr lincoln before they left that they believed him to be moved by a high patriotism and sincere devotion to the happiness and glory of his country they promised him to consider respectfully the suggestions he had made but it must have been evident to the president that they either had little sympathy with his plan or they believed it would receive no favor from their constituents although the message failed to arouse the border states it did stimulate the anti-slavery party in congress to complete several practical measures acts of congress were rapidly approved forbidding the army and navy to aid in the return of fugitive slaves recognizing the independence of liberia and haiti and completing a treaty with great britain to suppress slave trading one of the most interesting of the acts which followed close on the message of march sixth emancipated immediately all the slaves in the district of columbia one million dollars was appropriated by congress to pay the loyal slaveholders of the district for their loss and one hundred thousand dollars was set aside to pay the expenses of such negroes as desired to emigrate to haiti or liberia the administration was now committed to compensated emancipation but there were many radicals who grew restive at the slow working of the measure they began again to call for more trenchant use of the weapon in lincoln's hand the commander of the department of the south general david hunter in his zeal even issued an order declaring slavery and martial law in a free country are altogether incompatible the persons in georgia florida and south carolina heretofore held as slaves are therefore declared forever free lincoln's first knowledge of this proclamation came to him through the newspapers he at once pronounced it void at the same time he made a declaration at which a man less courageous one less confident in his own policy would have hesitated a declaration of his intention that no one but himself should decide how the weapon in his hand was to be used i further make known that whether it be competent for me as commander-in-chief of the army and navy to declare the slaves of any state or states free and whether at any time in any case it shall have become a necessity indispensable to the maintenance of the government to exercise such supposed power are questions which under my responsibility i reserve to myself and which i cannot feel justified in leaving to the decision of commanders in the field 
it was a public display of a trait of mr lincoln of which the country had already several examples he made his own decisions trusted his own judgment as a final authority in revoking hunter's order mr lincoln again appealed to the border states to accept his plan of buying and freeing their slaves and as if to warn them that the unauthorized step which hunter had dared to take might yet be forced upon the administration he said i do not argue i beseech you to make arguments for yourselves you cannot if you would be blind to the signs of the times i beg of you a calm and enlarged consideration of them ranging it may be far above personal and partisan politics this proposal makes common cause for a common object casting no reproaches upon any it acts not the pharisee the change it contemplates would come gently as the dews of heaven not rending or wrecking anything will you not embrace it so much good has not been done by one effort in all past time as in the providence of god it is now your high privilege to do may the vast future not have to lament that you have neglected it the president's treatment of hunter's order dissatisfied many who had been temporarily quieted by the message of march sixth again they besought the president to emancipate and arm the slaves the authority and magnitude of the demand became such that mr lincoln fairly staggered under it still he would not yield he could not give up yet his hope of a more peaceful and just system of emancipation but while he could not do what was asked of him he seems to have felt that it was possible that he was wrong and that another man in his place would be able to see the way in a remarkable interview held early in the summer with several republican senators among whom was the hon james harland of mount pleasant iowa the president actually offered to resign and let mr hamlin the vice-president initiate the policy the senators went to mr lincoln to urge upon him the paramount importance of mustering slaves into the union army they argued that as the war was really to free the negro it was only fair that he should take his part in working out his own salvation mr lincoln listened thoughtfully to every argument and then replied gentlemen i have put thousands of muskets into the hands of loyal citizens of tennessee kentucky and western north carolina they have said they could defend themselves if they had guns i have given them the guns now these men do not believe in mustering the negro if i do it these thousands of muskets will be turned against us we should lose more than we should gain the gentlemen urged other considerations among them that it was not improbable that europe which was anti-slavery in sentiment but yet sympathized with the notion of a southern confederacy preferring two nations to one in this country would persuade the south to free her slaves in consideration of recognition after they had exhausted every argument mr lincoln answered them gentlemen he said i can't do it i can't see it as you do you may be right and i may be wrong but i'll tell you what i can do i can resign in favor of mr hamlin perhaps mr hamlin could do it the senators amazed at this proposition 
which says senator harlan was made with the greatest seriousness and of which not one of us doubted the sincerity hastened to assure the president that they could not consider such a step on his part that he stood where he could see all around the horizon that he must do what he thought right that in any event he must not resign if at this juncture mcclellan had given the president a successful campaign it is probable that the radicals would have been more patient with the measure for compensated emancipation the border states seen in overthrow of the confederacy imminent might have hastened to avail themselves of it but mcclellan was giving the president little but anxiety he had undertaken the long-deferred campaign against richmond at the beginning of april but had begun by disobeying the clause of the president's order which instructed him to leave enough troops around washington to ensure its safety when he arrived in the peninsula he began to fortify his position as if he were entering on a defensive instead of offensive campaign and it was only after repeated probing by the administration that he advanced every mile of his route towards richmond was made only after urgent pleas and orders from the president and the secretary of war and bitter complaints and forebodings on his part mr lincoln's attitude towards his general-in-chief in this trying spring of eighteen sixty two is a most interesting study he evidently had determined to exercise fully his power as commander-in-chief to force mcclellan into battle and to compel him to carry out the orders which he as chief executive gave conscious of his ignorance of military matters and anxious to avoid errors he exhausted every source of information on the army and its movements secretary stanton himself did not watch the army of the potomac more closely in this campaign than did president lincoln indeed of the three rooms occupied by the military telegraph office at the war department one came to be called the president's room so much time did he spend there during a part of the war this room was occupied by mr a b chandler now the president of the postal telegraph union i was alone in this room says mr chandler and as few people came there to see me mr lincoln could be alone he used to say i come here to escape my persecutors many people call and say they want to see me for only a minute that means if i can hear their story and grant their request in a minute it will be enough my desk was a large one with a flat top and intended to be occupied on both sides mr lincoln ordinarily took the chair opposite mine at this desk here he would read over the telegrams reserved for the several heads of departments all of which came to this office it was the practice to make three copies of all messages received to whomsoever addressed one of these was what we called a hard copy and was saved for the records of the war department two carbon copies were made by stylus on yellow tissue paper one for mr lincoln and one for mr stanton mr lincoln's copies were kept in what we called the president's drawer of the cipher desk he would come in at any time of the night or day and go at once to this drawer and take out a file of the telegrams and begin at the top to read them his position in running over these telegrams was sometimes very curious he had a habit of sitting frequently on the edge of his chair with his right knee dragged down to the floor 
i remember a curious expression of his when he got to the bottom of the new telegrams and began on those that he had read before it was well i guess i have got down to the raisins the first two or three times he said this he made no explanation and i did not ask one but one day after the remark he looked up under his eyebrows at me with a funny twinkle in his eyes and said i used to know a little girl out west who sometimes was inclined to eat too much one day she ate a good many more raisins than she ought to and followed them up with a quantity of other goodies it made her very sick after a time the raisins began to come she gasped and looked at her mother and said well i will be better now i guess for i have got down to the raisins mr lincoln frequently wrote telegrams in my office his method of composition was slow and laborious it was evident that he thought out what he was going to say before he touched his pen to the paper he would sit looking out of the window his left elbow on the table his hand scratching his temple his lips moving and frequently he spoke the sentence aloud or in a half whisper after he was satisfied that he had the proper expression he would write it out if one examines the originals of mr lincoln's telegrams and letters he will find very few erasures and very little interlining this was because he had them definitely in his mind before writing them in this he was the exact opposite of mr stanton who wrote with feverish haste often scratching out words and interlining frequently sometimes he would seize a sheet which he had filled and impatiently tear it into pieces it is only necessary to examine the letters and telegrams lincoln sent to mcclellan in the campaign of nineteen sixty two to appreciate the rare patience and still rarer firmness and common sense with which he was handling his hard military problems as has been said mcclellan began his campaign by disobeying the order to leave washington fully guarded the president learning this kept back a corps of the army mcclellan protested but lincoln would not give up the force do you really think he wrote mcclellan i should permit the line from richmond via manassas junction to this city to be entirely open except what resistance could be presented by less than twenty thousand unorganized troops this is a question which the country will not allow me to evade when it became evident that mcclellan did not intend to advance promptly the president made a vigorous protest once more let me tell you it is indispensable to you that you should strike a blow i am powerless to help this you will do me the justice to remember i always insisted that going down the bay in search of a field instead of fighting at or near manassas was only shifting and not surmounting a difficulty that we would find the same enemy and the same or equal entrenchments at either place the country will not fail to note is noting now that the present hesitation to move upon an entrenched enemy is but the story of manassas repeated i beg to assure you that i have never written you or spoken to you in greater kindness of feeling than now nor with a fuller purpose to sustain you so far as in my most anxious judgment i consistently can but you must act mcclellan did act 
but with such caution that he consumed all of april and most of may in working his way up the peninsula to richmond every move he made was under protest that his force was too small and with incessant complaint that the administration was not supporting him towards the end of may when an extra corps that of mcdowell was on its way to richmond to cooperate with mcclellan the administration became alarmed by a threatened attack on washington and recalled mcdowell the most intelligent military authorities criticized mr lincoln for withdrawing this force just as the attack on the confederates was at last to be made it was an honest enough error on the president's part he believed the capital in danger he knew too that with ninety eight thousand men present for duty mcclellan ought to be able to take care of himself the general-in-chief however regarded this interference with his plans as added proof that the president did not intend to support him wished his overthrow and he sent the bitterest complaints to washington the president wrote him on may twenty fifth full explanations of the situation as he saw it and begged him to go ahead and do his best if mcdowell's force was now beyond our reach he said we should be utterly helpless apprehension of something like this and no unwillingness to sustain you has always been my reason for withholding mcdowell's force from you please understand this and do the best you can with the force you have three days later after the fighting for richmond had really begun he telegraphed him i am painfully impressed with the importance of the struggle before you and shall aid you all i can consistently with my view of due regard to all points and through the month following while mcclellan was engaged in the series of battles by which he hoped to get into richmond the president did sustain him in every way he could sending him troops as he could get them counseling him whenever he saw a weak point encouraging him after every engagement the result of the campaign was disastrous after working his way to within a few miles of richmond mcclellan was forced back to the james river and in a burst of bitter despair he telegraphed to washington if at this instant i could dispose of ten thousand fresh men i could gain a victory to-morrow i know that a few thousand more men would have changed this battle from a defeat to a victory as it is the government must not and cannot hold me responsible for the result i feel too earnestly to-night i have seen too many dead and wounded comrades to feel otherwise than that the government has not sustained this army if you do not do so now the game is lost if i save this army now i tell you plainly that i owe no thanks to you or to any person in washington you have done your best to sacrifice this army save your army at all events lincoln replied we'll send reinforcements as fast as we can of course they cannot reach you to-day to-morrow or next day i have not said you were ungenerous for saying you needed reinforcements i thought you were ungenerous in assuming that i did not send them as fast as i could i feel any misfortune to you and your army quite as keenly as you feel it yourself if you have had a drawn battle or a repulse it is the price we pay for the enemy not being in washington we protected washington and the enemy concentrated on you 
had we stripped washington he would have been upon us before the troops could have gotten to you less than a week ago you notified us that reinforcements were leaving richmond to come in front of us it is the nature of the case and neither you nor the government are to blame please tell at once the present condition and aspect of things this was june twenty eighth mr lincoln hoped that mcclellan might yet recover his position but the developments of the next two days showed him the campaign was a failure it was a terrible blow when the peninsula campaign terminated suddenly at harrison's landing mr lincoln said once to a friend who asked him if he had ever despaired of his country i was as nearly inconsolable as i could be and live but he neither faltered nor blamed he bade mcclellan find a place of security and wait and rest and repair to maintain his ground if he could but to save his army even if he fell back to fort monroe and he went to work to bring light into about as black a situation as a president ever faced his first duty was to ask men of the sorrowing and angry country the war department had felt so certain in april when mcclellan started on the peninsula campaign that it had force enough to finish the war that recruiting had been stopped now a new call was made for three hundred thousand men for three years end of section seven